Well, will you turn with me this morning in the Word of God to Nehemiah chapter 12. We're going to be examining chapters 11 and 12. But our text this morning will begin at verse 27 of, of Nehemiah chapter 12. So turn with me there and I'm going to ask you to stand with me now out of respect for the reading of the holy, infallible, inspired and an errant word of the living God. Now that the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, and with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. So the sons of the singers were assembled from the district around Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netaphathites, from Beth Gilgal and from their fields in Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built themselves villages around Jerusalem. The priests and the Levites purified themselves. They also purified the people, the gates and the wall. Then I had the leaders of Judah come up on top of the wall, and I appointed two great choirs, the first proceeding to the right on top of the wall towards the refuse gate, Hoshaiah, and half of the leaders of Judah followed them, and with Azariah, Ezra, Meshachiah, and Jeremiah, the son of the sons of the priests with trumpets, and Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mattaniah, the son of Micaiah, the son of Zechariah, the son of Asaph, the kinsmen Shemaiah, Azarel, Malali, Galali, and Netanel, Judah, and Hanani with the musical instrument, David, the man of God, and Ezra the scribe went before the stairway of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The second choir proceeded to the left while I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of furnaces to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim by the old gate by the fish gate, the tower of Hananel and the tower of the hundred as far as the sheep gate and they stopped at the gate of the guard. And the two choirs took their stand in the house of God. So did I, and half of the officials with me. The priests, Eliakim, Masiah, Miriam, Micaiah, Elioni, Zechariah, and Hananiah, with the trumpets, and Messiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Usi, Joanan, Melchizedek, and Ezer. And the singers sang leader for great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. Even the women and the children rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. On that day, men were also appointed over the chambers of the stores, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them from the fields of the cities the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who served. For they performed the worship of their God in the service of purification, together with the singers and the gatekeepers in accordance with the command of David and of his son Solomon. For in days of David and Asaph in ancient times there were leaders of the singers, songs of praise, and hymns of thanksgiving to God. So all of Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah give the portions due the singers and the gatekeepers as each day required and set apart the consecrated portion for the Levites, and the Levites set apart the consecrated portion for the sons of Aaron. Well, I hope you noticed as you turn the page in our reading that chapter 12 isn't the last chapter of the book of Nehemiah. Of course, you already know that. There's 13 chapters in the book of Nehemiah. 
But I, I think we can safely say this morning that in arriving at chapter 12, we've reached the climax of the book of Nehemiah. We've reached the climax, the pinnacle of all that the book of Nehemiah has been aiming at. And I say that first of all because when you enter into chapter 13, you begin to read it, well, uh, your heart is broken because it's really a highlight reel of lowlights. It shows the people of God behaving very badly. It's just a a stone's throw temporarily, just several years after the events recorded in chapter 12. But the thing that you take away from the very last chapter of written canonical revelation is that the church is going to need somebody who's greater than Nehemiah to straighten it out. And so the very last written canonical piece of revelation shows the church behaving badly to show the church before the coming of Christ that what the church was to be looking for was someone greater than a man, someone greater than David, someone greater than Solomon, someone greater than the prophets, someone greater than Nehemiah. They need to look for Jesus Christ. And so the failure is recorded for a reason. We're not ashamed of it. So that can't be the climax and so verse 12 is the climax. It's the, the climax, if you will, of the section that we've been looking through most recently, chapters 7 to 12. And I would argue more broadly, it is the climax of the entire book from chapter 1 to 12. Remember, we've been pursuing a two-part mini-series in our exposition of this great book of Nehemiah. And the first mini-series was Restoring Glory in Zion. And it was all about the restoration of those rebuilt, ruined walls. Nehemiah came with the, the bidding and the help and the authority and the goodwill of the king Artaxerxes of Persia. And he was sent on a mission to do one thing, and that was to rebuild those ruined walls and its gates which had been burnt with fire. But as we turn to chapter 7, we began to realize that that was only part of the mission. That there was another mission which led to another miniseries, which was building community in Zion. And this miniseries has been all about seeking to watch how Nehemiah went about the task of building up city life within Zion. And of course, his entire aim was to build a city life which matched the glory of God, which is symbolized in those walls. You see, the heart of the covenant promise from Leviticus 26.12 and forward is that God would be the God of His covenant people and that He would dwell in the midst of them. But that dwelling of God in the midst of His people required a certain, well, it required a certain set of behaviors on behalf of the people of God. They needed to be consecrated unto Him in holiness and righteousness and worship. And so as we track our way through chapters 7 through 12, we realize that what Nehemiah is doing was really the greater aim of his coming to Jerusalem. You see, it was one thing to rebuild those walls so that the, the ruined walls wouldn't detract from the glory of God and wouldn't be unto the detriment of, of the tribe of Judah. But the broader purpose of Nehemiah coming to Jerusalem was to restore the ruined walls and where he could restore the city life of the people of God so that they would be consecrated unto the Lord for worship. That's their call. It's always the call of the people of God. And so, we've been watching him do that. 
But you see, chapter 12 has to be read inseparably from what happened or what began to happen in chapter 7. And I'll tell you a simple reason why it has to be that way. And the simple reason why it has to be that way is in verse 31 in the personal pronoun I. Verse 31 of chapter 12, Then I had the leaders of Judah come up on top of the wall, and I appointed the two great choirs. You say, why are you grasping at the first person personal pronoun? And the answer is because it is the, the first time that it's been used since when? Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 5, which commenced the beginning of this whole section of the testimony of the restoration of the city life in Zion, where we see there in verse 5, then I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up first, which I found the following record. The fact that Nehemiah section or bookended or, or picked these two portions indicates to us that he's tying the whole thing together. And that means that everything from verse 7 or chapter 7 all the way through verse 12 needs to be read as a unit. And it's very interesting that it marches in a very orderly fashion. Because in chapter 7, we begin with the constitution of the church. That is, the people who are on the genealogical roles of the church. These were the roles of the covenanted. We were trying to establish a pool of potential citizens for, for life in Jerusalem. Remember, Nehemiah went about this whole task because the city was large and spacious, but the problem is you could shoot a cannonball through the, the streets of Jerusalem and not hit anybody because no one lived there. There were more cats than people. So, Nehemiah had to establish, first of all, a roster of potential citizens to live within Zion. And then in chapter 8, we read about the, the spiritual reshaping of the people of Zion through the reading of the law. And then in chapter 9, we read about the consecration of the people of God to live in Zion through their confession and repentance of their sins. And then in chapter 10, we saw the covenanting of the people of God, the public covenanting of the people of God to own God as their God and their moral duties before Him. But now we come to what is the pinnacle and the climax of it all. And we see what Nehemiah has been aiming about all throughout these chapters, which is the restoration of Zion as a community of worshipers. That's the heart of our text. I know there are a lot of names that probably you and I cannot pronounce very well. And we wouldn't want to take a speed reading test through these texts in this chapter because there's a lot of names that are tongue twisters. But as you read it, you begin to realize from its very structure, its organization, and from key statements placed throughout, that it's a very strategically written piece of literature, and the point of it all is to teach the church about what it's supposed to be, and the purpose of what the church is supposed to be all about is that the church is to be consecrated unto the worship of God. That's the point of our text. And uh, we're going to expound it in four parts. This main idea of the church being consecrated into worship 
will be expounded in four parts. Organization, purification, celebration, and dedication. Now, I know most of my sermons are only two points, and I'm proposing four. We have a lot of work to do. Some of it can be done quickly, and some of it will have to be done more slowly. But let's think about organization. And organization is important because of the way our text is laid out. I could argue for us this morning that the real pivot point of our text begins at verse 27 in chapter 12, where I began our reading this morning, which is the reference to the dedication of the wall by the Levites. But what you needed to know before you can get to that section and the dedication of the wall by the Levites is, who in the world are the Levites? How do you know who they are? And this is the point of chapter 11, is to establish who the Levites are, to establish who the citizens of Jerusalem are, so we can see now, that as you come into the latter part of chapter 12, that Nehemiah is taking this organized group of Jerusalem citizens, and he is consecrating them and the city of Zion under the worship of God. So let's think about it. There's some portions here in chapter 11 that we can begin to work through that will help us begin to sense what Nehemiah is up to here. And so the very first thing that we want to think about is the city. The city and who's living in it. Remember, chapter 7 ended with a a reference to to the Levites and so forth. It, It didn't end with... Nehemiah bringing the citizens into town. There was a problem. There still weren't any, there wasn't anybody yet designated to live there. And now we see that Nehemiah takes care of that here. So we see that the heart of our text, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 11, we think about organization, proceeds as, as follows. The leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths remain in the other cities. And the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in the city. So the indication is here that already there are some people living in the cities. These people would be denominated as the leaders, which would mean that they are civic leaders, perhaps military leaders and such. But that really isn't that many people. And so we, we essentially have an empty city. And so the agreement that was struck is out of the, the totality of the pool of possible candidates, the way that they would establish who would become the new citizens of Zion was by casting lots. And the agreement was, and the arrangement was, that basically these who were taken out of the entire pool would be uh, essentially a tithe. 10% of the eligible candidates would be contributed to the citizenship of Zion. And the way they established who would be a part of that tithe or of that 10% of the total eligible candidates was through casting lots. Well, it's interesting that the lots fell on particular people and then in verse 2, they're characterized in a very interesting way. It says the people blessed all those who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if that's a euphemism or not, but it's quite interesting because the people in view in verse 2 are the very people who are in view in verse 1 upon whom the lot fell. But the very way of thinking about it in terms of them being contributed to citizenship by the casting of a lot tells us something important. 
And, and the reason why they took such pains to establish who it was that would be a part of this uh, citizenship of Zion is the description of the city that is contained in verse 1. It is called the holy city. It is called the holy city. Jerusalem is a city of holiness. Verse 18 stresses the point as well. And so part of the blessing of the people upon whom the lot fell was that they were going to become citizens of a city of holiness. A city that was consecrated and dedicated thoroughly unto the Lord. But how did they get there? They got there through the casting of lots. And of course, as we think about the meaning of the teaching of the Old Testament, one of the things that comes to mind very clearly, whether we quite understand what the casting of lots was all about, the casting of the lot was under the sovereign control of God. As Proverbs 16.33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is of the Lord. The point of this is to say that every single person upon whom the lot fell was a person chosen by God. That's the point of this. When we begin to think about who the volunteers were, one way they knew that they were volunteers is because God volunteered them. Their calling came by the sovereign appointment of God. Now imagine how they felt. What a blessing it was for them to know that their life didn't just unravel in a sort of, a sort of meaningless way. They had been living in the towns and the villages and the hillsides of Jerusalem. But on this day, when the lot fell upon them, they knew precisely, in a very direct way, what God's will was for their life. And they knew on that day that they had been chosen by God. And there's a great blessing in that because nothing makes life more firm. Nothing makes our determinations more certain. Nothing makes our place in life more joyful than knowing that where we are and who we are has been appointed for us by the Lord. That is a faith perspective which is essential to our whole identity as believers and as our calling in this world. That we're not doing our own will, but we are doing the will of God in Christ. And the only way we can know that is by knowing that the appointment is from God. And so here these citizens are being consecrated to citizenship in Jerusalem for the purpose of being set apart for the worship of God. Imagine how that changed their approach to worship. As they came before the Lord in worship, they knew that this was their calling. God had appointed them. And it's the same for us today. If we would dig deep down into the depths of, of the motivation that we have for our worshiping God and being faithful and consecrated unto that calling to be worshipers of God is that we know our election. The Apostle Paul speaks of it. He says, you can know your election. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says, we know your election." You know, there's some people who claim to not know their election. There's some people you talk to who would give anything to have assurance of their salvation. 
There's some people who say, I just want to know. And the Apostle Paul would tell you, here's how you know. Because he goes on the very next clause and he says, for our gospel didn't come to you in word only, but it came in power and in conviction and in the Holy Spirit. And the evidence and the fruit of that is testified to in the subsequent verses when it says that they turned from idols to serve the living and the true God. You see, the Apostle Paul says you can test your election this morning by where your faith is. Whom do you look for? You see, the Reformed are often criticized for emphasizing the decree. And I, the decree, and I, I don't think they emphasize the decree. They simply teach the Scriptures. Uh, the sovereignty of God and predestination is important because the Bible says it is. And the Reformed weren't the first people to notice it, by the way. There's all kinds of people who've noticed it out through the history of the church. But if you ask the Reformers, how do you know I'm elect, they would not tell you to set up fleece somewhere and test God. The Reformers would have told you, look straight in the face of Jesus Christ. How do I know whether I'm elect? Because I love Him. Because I cast my faith upon Him. Because We don't tell people to, to seek to pry into the secret things of God to know their election. We do it just exactly like the Apostle Paul showed us. He said, where is your faith? Because you see, as Luther liked to say, election explains the surprise of faith. If there had been no election, there would be no believers. This is why the Apostle Paul, when he seeks to expound the the, the the depths of the spiritual riches of the believer starts with election. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. He says, chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. And every other single grace flows from that fountain. Do you know your election this morning? The way you know your election this morning is that you believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. Because you know that, you are consecrated to the worship of Christ. So we have a great story already being told here in the first couple of verses, don't we? He's seeking to restore this, uh, this city of Zion to to worship, and he begins by making sure that every single person there was gripped by the knowledge of God's mercies. They had been sovereignly appointed to the casting of lots to be consecrated unto worship. But you know what, people of God? There's another great story of grace tucked in here. And it comes in a very surprising way. That brings us now from... Uh, we thought about broadly the volunteers, and within those volunteers now, we learn about all of these names on this list here. And don't worry, I'm not going to go through them all. But there's something that really grabs you as you think about the tribes. We're told in verse um, 3 here that uh, the heads of the provinces who lived in Jerusalem, the cities of Judah, each lived at his own 
property in their cities, the, the Israelites. And so I stopped there to see that that's a, that's a set of tribes. It, it would be a reference to the tribes of the northern kingdom who were a disgrace, who apostatized from the Lord and were carried away in, in exile a couple of hundred years or more before this because of their constant idolatry and, and worship of false gods. But notice uh, here within the list of the people who, upon whom a, a lot fell were Israelites. And I, and I can say that they're not just Jews or, or uh, the tri- tribe of Judah in general because they're distinguished uh, tribally because he goes on to speak of the priests, the Levites, and then also in verse 4 uh, speaks of some of the sons of Judah. So we know Israelites were one set of tribes. And then we have Benjamin, if you would look at verse 4, and then 7 and 8 and 9. Not a lot is told. Uh, given, not a lot of information is given to us there about about this tribe of Benjamin. Perhaps maybe the peculiar thing we might say about them is 928 were brought into the city by way of citizenship. But it's Judah that I would fix our eyes upon for just a moment because uh, there's something very conspicuous and interesting here. Because, um, you know, we see the list of the of the family names here in verse 4. Uh, Atiah and Zechariah, and Aramiah, and Mahalal, and then Perez. We have five family names here. And then some more in verse 5, but notice what verse 6 comes back to. Perez, the sons of Perez. And Oh, I don't know if you're already thinking about the sons of Perez, if any bells are going off and you're thinking, but well, the sons of Perez are sons of incest. You know, Genesis 38 tells you the story of one of the most disgraceful, embarrassing, gross, and evil things that's said in the Bible about the tribe of Judah. And one of the things that we're told there is uh, the patron who, whose name they bear, Judah, impregnated his daughter-in-law. It wasn't by design After all, she was dressed up like a harlot. He didn't even see her face. That adds to the problem. The the patron of the the name of the tribe that they are a part of was somebody like that who spent his time going into the brothel. But you see, unbeknownst to him, it it was his daughter-in-law who deceived him is because he promised her that he would give his son to her in marriage because his first son that was married to her, Ur, died before they could have children. And so the rest of the sons after him refused to to fulfill the deliberate marriage responsibility. And so Judah promised that the last son would, and yet he never followed through on his promise. And so she engaged in deceit. And so we have here the record of 1,500 years later, the son of Perez within the membership of the people of God as Nehemiah consecrates the holy city of Zion into worship. And the thing that we can't help but uh, to grasp hold of here is how one commentator puts it. The grace of God overrules and overcomes disgrace. Think of the filthiness and and the moral corruption and the, the evil of the story of incest. 
And yet, by the grace of God overcoming the sins of Judah and this woman Tamar and the sins of their family, the children who had no part in it are plucked out of that sinful past and are made recipients of God's grace. It's instructive to note that not only are they mentioned here, but they are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1, verse 3. You see, tucked away into the story of the people who inhabited this holy city of Jerusalem who were being consecrated to grace were people who experienced unfathomable grace from God. That God would take such wretched, wicked, evil circumstances and make the descendants and recipients of that great evil members of the family of God. You see, the point was to make a city full of worshipers. And how do you make a city or a church full of worshipers? You do that by testifying to them of the overwhelming mercies of God. You don't make a vibrant worshiping community by barking out commands to the people of God. You make a vibrant worshiping community of people by impressing upon them the story of God's grace. And that's the story that Nehemiah is telling us here. And I just uh, would include in here for your thinking this note in chapter 43 when they begin the great worship service of the dedication of the, of the city and the walls and of Jerusalem that the joy of Jerusalem was so loud, they heard it from far away. And as we think about this story contained just in these few verses, we begin to understand why. You see, the exuberance and the joy of the worship was grounded in the personal awareness of the citizens of the mercy of God in Christ to them. They had been chosen. They had received this great outpouring and administration of God's grace. So that's the city. We think now of the leadership. I'm going to work through this more quickly because there's a story being told here, but it doesn't require in-depth exposition. Uh, It's a story of leadership, and I'll tell you why that matters in a moment. But you, you know, the very first people that are mentioned in our text in, in chapter 11 are the leaders, but that's not going to be the last time. In fact, this theme is going to persist straight on up through chapter 12, verse 26. The spotlight is on leadership. Uh, we can see of this um, sons of Perez, the note about them is there's not just four and 68, but that every single one of them were able men. That's a military term. They were military officers and soldiers of the tribe of Benjamin. The only noteworthy thing that we gather from that is that Joel, the son of Zikri, was their overseer. In chapter 4 and verse 14, as we read about the Levites, we read of 128 leaders of the Levites who were valiant warriors. And they had an overseer named Zabdiel. You drop to verse 16. You see the reference to leadership again as we read about Shabbatai and Jezebad from the leaders of the Levites who were in charge. And in verse 17, the listing of Levitical personnel, we find a reference to Mataniah, who was the leader in the beginning of thanksgiving and prayer. In verse 19, we read the 172 gatekeepers whose duty was the charge of the gates. And then verse 22, we read of 
Uzi, the overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem, who had charge over the Levitical singers. How about this as you turn over into chapter 12 and you look at the fact that they called the Levites. Well, from verse 1 all the way through verse 26 is a painstaking setting forth of the genealogy of the Levites. It had to be established who the leaders of the worship of God were. And so in the first nine verses, we read about a whole generation of worshipers that were the first ones to return, the first generation of worship leaders in 1 through 9. And then in 10 through 11, we read of the series of, of, the, of the high priests who had been serving as high priests since the return, and now it's 100 years later. And then verses 12 through 26, we have the painstaking record of the Levites who were now the servants of the generation in which Nehemiah served. One of the themes that is struck here is the theme of leadership. You see, as God restored the city of Zion and consecrated it to be a city of worshipers, He did that through organization and through the raising up of godly leadership who would lead the worship of God. You see, what Nehemiah did not do, what Nehemiah did not do was try to consecrate the city of Jerusalem to be a worshiping people and allowing it or permitting it to be to the freedom of each person's uh, sense and awareness of their personal devotion. No, the way that he ensured that it would be a city consecrated to worship was to place over the citizens of Jerusalem godly leaders both civic and religious, who would see to it that the city as a whole was consecrated unto the Lord for worship. That reminds us this morning, people of God, that the spiritual vitality of the church is bound up with the leadership and the organization of the church. It's not just the Old Testament that makes reference to this. The whole book of Acts, if you will, Uh, could be approached through the theme of God raising up leaders in his church. He raises up Peter in chapter 2, and then we find out towards the end of chapter 2 that all of the apostles were there ministering and leading the church. We read about the leadership of of John in chapter 3 and 4. We learn about the leadership and and the ministry of all of the apostles and their commitment to ministry in in chapter 6. Uh, We read about the leadership of the the church of Antioch. One of the very first things we read about them in chapter 13 is they were led by a whole plethora of leaders. When the Apostle Paul narrates his missionary journey, he talks about as he comes back from the end of his first missionary journey, how in every city along the way, he stopped and was a part of raising up godly leaders in every city. You could just keep following that theme throughout the book of Acts, that that leadership and organization of the people of God is essential to consecrating the people of God to worship. When the Apostle Paul expounds in the greatest depth of all the New Testament about the ministry of the New Testament church, he says in Acts, or rather Ephesians chapter 4, 11 and following, that first of all, the ministry has been raised up by Christ and His church and is in submission to Him, has been gifted by Him, but is also given its purpose by Christ. And that purpose is spelled out in verse 13. 
that the saints might all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature to belongs to the fullness of Christ. You see, uh, leadership and organization is inseparable to the consecration of the church to ministry. At the end of Paul's um, tour de force in 1 Corinthians 14 about worship and its order and its organization, he and he gave us the, the theme verse of Presbyterianism, let all things be done decently and in order. You see, the point of it all is to say the church is never consecrated to be a worshiping people apart from godly leadership and organization. It won't happen. Faithful worship will not persist and continue in the church of God apart from leaders who are raised up by Christ and appointed to ministry. It's an inseparable relationship. So people of God, we ought to rejoice in the leadership that Christ has instituted and find ourselves submissive to that leadership which Christ has instituted. But there's something else here about this reference to leadership and the necessity of it all and what it means in another theme here that's an adjunct really to, to leadership, and it's the theme of, of continuity. It is the theme of, of continuity. And you know, uh, it's interesting to us, I just mentioned how as, as we come into verse 27, we have this reference to the Levites. Well, we know who they are because verse 26 just ended the list of the current generation of Levites in Nehemiah's day. He had set that out from verse 12 to 26. But you see, if, if the first part of that list, the names from verses 1 through 9, are about the returning generation, that was 100 years ago. One of the things that, that this list is telling us, that here, 100 years later, there is a continuity to the worship leadership of the church. There is a continuity because one generation has handed off the calling and the duty of leadership and worship to the next. And so the line traces back a hundred years of faithfulness and continuity. But you know, there, there's something else here. If you look back to, to chapter 11, uh, you notice that um, the son of Metaniah, Uzi, uh, he was the son of Metaniah, who was the son of Asaph. If you look at verse 35 of chapter 12, you notice again the sons here. And uh, we see uh, that Zechariah, the one who was one of the trumpet blowers, was what? Son of Asaph. You see, uh, it's not just that... <laughs> there is an expression of faithfulness that reaches back a hundred years. There's an expression of faithfulness that reaches back 500 years because Asaph was appointed by King David to be a song leader. So what Nehemiah has done is show for the church this continuity in terms of the structure of its leadership and worship. And one of the things that he's saying here, as he's raising up the church in Zion to be consecrated unto worship, is that he's going back to the old ways. 
He's not um, following fads or trends, if you will. He's not asking the question, well, what would the young people like? Because we always know that's the justification for doing things different in the church. Because a new generation is here, and they have cell phones now and 5G. We've got to do things different because the times are different. And Nehemiah seems entirely unconcerned about 5G. What Nehemiah seems to be painstakingly concerned about is to show that when he reconstitutes the people of God in Zion as a worshiping community, is that the very structure of their worship is according to the old ways. Why is that important? Well, look at your text with me at verse 24. Chapter 12, verse 24. The heads of the Levites were Heshabiah, Sherebiah, Yeshua, the son of Cadmiel, with their brothers opposite them to praise and give thanks. Note, as prescribed by David, the man of God. Why did he do this? Why were certain people, people doing certain things in worship? Well, because it was prescribed by David man of God. You see another reference to David as man of God if you would drop down to verse 36 of chapter 12 here where you're told the kinsmen Shemaiah, Azarel, Malali, Galali, Maya, Netanel, Judah, and Hanani with the musical instruments of David the man of God. And then of course verse 45 we have the same reference here where we're told that they performed their worship in the service of purification with the singers and the gatekeepers in accordance with the command of God. You couldn't miss the theme if you were tiptoeing through this in the dark. You would stick your toe on it. That's how prominent and obvious it is that one of the things that Nehemiah places on the stamp of, of the testimony of the record of how he consecrated the people of God to worship in Zion was this. He's making sure that this new generation is being consecrated according to the old path. He's saying that they're doing worship exactly as David prescribed. And the thing that reinforces it and gives it such strength is that word, those words, Man of God. You see, that's a term for a prophet. In the Old Testament, man of God is a term for a prophet. And it's true, David was not a prophet. But you know, if you read through Chronicles, it's very clear that David received all of the instruction about worship by direct revelation of the Spirit of God. You see, Nehemiah had read his Bible. And the way he implemented worship and the consecration of the church to its task was by going back to the Word of God and receiving what David had been given by the Spirit of God. Why didn't worship change? Because God doesn't change. You see, His Word didn't change. And the word didn't change because God didn't change. The reason he's highlighting continuity is to show the church the way to be consecrated to worship. The way for the church to be consecrated to worship is not by doing things their own way. It's not by asking people to engage themselves with all of their creativity. It's not to ask people to 
exercise themselves into novelty to find out what the fads and the trends are. The way for the church to consecrate itself unto being the people of God, set apart for worship unto the Lord, is that it finds out from the Word of God precisely what He commands and then simply submitting to it and obeying it and and doing it. People of God, this has to be our principle. I know I'm preaching to the proverbial choir, as it were, but it will change. Your children who are sitting here before us this morning will have a choice in their day. Will they change? And young children, you're learning about the regulative principle of worship as you sit here every day. You're learning what it means to worship God. You're learning that it's important when we gather here that we're quiet. You're learning that there's a reason why you're to sit still because God is talking. You're learning that this hour is important because we're here not for ourselves, but for the Lord. We're learning that it's important to do exactly what God does because this worship isn't for us, it's for the Lord. And so this is what's so important here is that every generation is instructed in the very principles of worship. So 500 years later, if it were possible, we could walk into All Saints Reformed Presbyterian Church of Brea and it would be worshiping exactly how it's worshiping today. And the reason why that would be important is because God doesn't change. And that's our testimony We're testifying to the immutability of God by worshiping the same way. The way that God has commanded, and that's what Nehemiah has set forth for us to see. Well, that's just our first point, people of God. uh, We have a lot in our text. I know I have a very short time. Can I just show you a couple of more things in our text that are, I think, very important? And the first would be purification. I know I don't have a great deal of time to to dig into this, but the thing that is highlighted here as uh, Nehemiah tells the testimony of the commencement of the, the rededication of the, of the people to be a worshiping people is that the priests and the Levites now in verse 30 purified themselves. They also purified the people, the gates, and the wall. Everything was consecrated through purification. We're not told how, but there is a record of a similar public consecration and purification in Second Chronicles 29 under the reign of Hezekiah when he came to his spiritual senses by way of God's powerful conversion and he called upon the priests to, to purify the people so they could dedicate themselves into covenant. And we're told that what they did was they brought forth seven bulls and seven rams and seven lambs and seven male goats as a sin offering. That was after eight prior days of constant purification of the priests and the temple and the people. You see, a great and costly blood sacrifice was the purification for worship. And as I read my New Testament Bible, I'm reminded that's the same way for us to be consecrated unto the Lord now. It's through the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who was offered up, that Lamb who was without spot or without blemish. That is the way to being purified and to be set apart for Christ and His worship. You see, our worship will only be as vibrant and exuberant and spiritually vital 
as the people who are bringing it are purified by the blood of Jesus Christ. You can say all you want. You you can repeat the words. You, You can go through the motions, but the worship will not be spiritually robust and vigorous if the people who are gauging in it have not been purified with the blood of Christ. And so this testimony here to the purification by the Levites of themselves and the people reminds us this morning that the way to be consecrated into the worship of the Lord is to be first purified with Christ and His precious blood. We'll get to the reason for all that now as we come into the actual celebration. You can see that in verses 31 and following. And I can just narrate it because it's just as easy. Uh, Nehemiah sets up two choirs to form a procession of worshipers, two different choirs. One, one set of worshipers would, would walk down the southern end of the wall and go counterclockwise to the east and then up the north. And then, and then the other set of worshipers would gather here and they go north up the wall and east. And then they all met in the temple. But you see, the point of it all was to say that as those choir members, as they, as they marched across the city walls, and by the way, those walls were nine foot thick. So it was possible for at least three deep to walk in column up and down those city walls. As they tread those city walls, as as they stepped upon those stones, they they were consecrating the walls and all that was within it to the glory of God. And we know that was the point of it all because as Nehemiah testifies, what did they do in verse 40? They took their stand in the house of God. And then what he tells us is they engaged in sacrifice. They offered up great sacrifices. And then I want you to notice where it ended with thanksgiving, with rejoicing, with singing of psalms. Nehemiah says here in verse 43, God, it says on that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. Even the women and the children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. You see what they did here to consecrate these walls and to consecrate themselves to be a worshiping people was to sing psalms. They sang aloud with joy, with vigor, with strength. With such strength and with such force that the hillsides could hear them worship and sing. But I want you to notice why. It says on that day they offered great sacrifices and they rejoiced because God had given them great joy. You see that? It wasn't within them to do that. The way that we become a worshiping body and to be consecrated to Christ and sincere and true and vibrant and heartfelt worship is an act of God's grace. As much as we stress the regulative principle and doing things in the right way, it would be a cold, dead formalism to simply cling to commands and say we're just doing our duty. That duty is to never be separated from the heartfelt expression of devotion in the things that we do. We could be misunderstood with all of our 
of our talking about the regulative principle and doing what God requires. People of God, that's not the end. That's part of the means. We're doing what God commands, but, but notice here, Nehemiah goes out of his way to say, yes, we commit ourselves to the regular principle, but our worship ought to be the most exuberant. Because the way we do this is not in our strength. We do this through Jesus Christ. The preacher says this in the New Testament. A very powerful phrase in Hebrews 13 verse 15, where the preacher says, Through him, then, let us continually offer up the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, that is to give thanks to his name. See, the, the preacher tells us how we do what is stated right here, to, to offer up praises with great joy because God had given them it. This is how we do it. He says, through him. You know, in context, you know what he's been talking about in Hebrews 13? The finality and the sufficiency of Christ's death on the cross. And what caps off the discussion there is says, he went outside of the gate to offer himself. That's exactly what happened to Jesus Christ. He was strung up on a cross between thieves outside of the camp to show thereby... He was the fulfillment of all of the typological sacrifices required by the law. The preacher, by using this language, is showing us about the finality of the work on the cross for our sins. And he says, in view of that, in view of that, continually offer up sacrifices of praise to God. You see, our worship will not be pleasing to God unless our worship is in Christ. People say that we could look like a Jewish synagogue. We have our psalters. We have no instruments. We just have plain walls. But how dare us if that's what we look like. Because our worship is in Christ. Our worship is the sacrifice of praise, of giving thanks. It's the fruit of the lips. It is the expression of people who've been redeemed with the blood of Jesus Christ. The only way for us to worship as God would have us, the only way for us to be a people consecrated unto the worship of God as we ought, is to constantly bring forth before our consciousness that this worship is in Christ and it's because of His mercy of His perfect work on the cross. Let's never forget that. In all of our striving to please God by obedience, let's always remember that it is founded in and flows out of Christ and therefore the source of our joy and worship is that we've found our life and our hope in Jesus and in His cross. So that's the celebration. We come now to the very last point. And it's the dedication. We come here to the dedication. And I don't want to say much, but I do want to notice this. Verse 44 says, On that day men were appointed over the chambers for the stores, the contributions, and the first fruits of the tithes to gather them into the fields in the city, the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites. 
And then I want you to notice in verse 47. So all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah gave the portions due the singers and the gatekeepers as each day required. Do you see what I'm laying hold of here? The dedication. Verse 44 says on that day. On that day when they dedicated those walls. On that day when Nehemiah consecrated the city of Zion to be a worshiping community unto the Lord. On that day, the very first thing that they did after the worship is they made a commitment to provide for the ministry of the church. Don't miss this point. You could shake your head in agreement at everything I said so far and said, Pastor, that's perfectly true. We must be organized under leadership to worship. We must be purified by Christ's blood to worship. We must celebrate with great joy in Jesus Christ. Our text does not end there. Our text ends with dedication. And our dedication to sustaining the ministry in the church. The text ends with the note that people were appointed over the granaries and over the treasuries and over the houses of the temple, so that the people of God, according to the commandment of Christ, would bring their tithes and their offerings in the temple. For what reason? Look at verse 44. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who served, for they performed the worship of their God. Do you see why they committed themselves to give? They committed themselves to give to the church because they understood that the ministry had to be sustained and maintained. And the commandment of Christ is that the ministry is maintained with the gifts of the people of God who received the ministry of the church. So let me not preach for myself. Let me preach for this church 30 years from now. Where will it be? Where will this church be? Where will this church be for your children? Where will your church be for your grandchildren? Well, I'll tell you where it will be. It will only be where uh, it will only be if we're faithful. Not just in our doctrine, but in our giving. That's the honest truth. No ministry will be sustained without that. Because Christ has appointed these things to hold together. A ministry in the church of the means of grace sustained by the people who receive it. So what does that tell you? It says they gave the portion due. It means, literally the verb means they gave what they were assigned. So I challenge you this morning. If we would be a church consecrated to the worship of the Lord, we must be a church that's dedicated unto giving the portion that is due. That will be not the same for all of us. We cannot all give in the same proportion, the same amount. But we all must give. If you don't make a plan to give, you're planning not to give. The person that doesn't give is the person who's saying they're receiving nothing. And the person who can say this morning they're receiving nothing is a person that shouldn't be here. Because your worship is vain. We're not here to make a show of being seen at worship. We're here to worship the Lord and to receive from Him. And if we're receiving from Him, then our calling is to do what these brethren of old did. 
they gave the portions that were due. We will demonstrate whether we have been consecrated to worship by whether we are dedicated to sustain it. Chapter 13 is an ugly chapter. We're about ready to see it. Within a stone's throw of this beautiful, climactic note of the life of the church, it withered spiritually like dust the fingers. We've been studying how to build community in Zion. It's to be in covenant with God. It's to be shaped by His Word. It's to be consecrated by repentance. It's to publicly covenant. It's to be set apart for worship. That's how you build it. That's it. It's simple. It's, it's a set of simple five ingredients. It's not complicated. But the testimony of chapter 13 reminds us that it's one thing to know how. It's quite another to be devoted. The challenge before us today as we've learned what it means to be a community consecrated unto the Lord and His worship is that we don't just know this, but that we exercise heartfelt devotion to pursue this. And so, people of God, I leave us this morning contemplating this wonderful that the pathway for us to know God building community in Zion in our midst is by seeking to be faithful and devoted to what Christ has appointed through the grace and the help of the Holy Spirit. So may God help us to seek after His ways. If we do that, we'll know his blessing. He will build community in Zion in our midst. Father, we thank you for an old word that addresses us in the contemporary situation. Would it be able to be said that we truly are consecrated unto the Lord in worship, organized, purified, celebrating with joy, and dedicated to the house of the Lord? This is something that you must work in our midst. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would do that, that we would have a sincere and heartfelt devotion unto these things. And they would not happen unto us like it did in the church of Nehemiah's day, that it faltered very spiritually badly in just a few short years. But that through these things, as we learn them and seek to apply them to our life and the life of this church, that we would know a great spiritual vibrancy And that the fruit of it would be obvious and evident that you would work in us a great work by your grace as we commit ourselves to these things that we would know the joy and the blessing of community being built in Zion right here in our midst. So we're going to ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.